Hello, Guitar Smarts listeners. This is an important announcement. Please don't skip ahead. We start this podcast with a special message. Way back in 2021, Guitar Smarts had the pleasure of interviewing the utterly fantastic Matt Long. Matt is a multiple award-winning British blues guitarist and lead singer of the British blues band Catfish and hard rock outfit The Revenant Ones. He joined us for episode number 20 and was a truly gracious guest who spoke about his career, his childhood, guitars and meetings his hero, Joe Bonamassa. Well, Matt needs your help. Through 2023, Matt has been undergoing treatment for bowel cancer, and his recent prognosis has meant that to extend his life and retain a chance of survival, he needs to seek private treatment outside of the NHS. Matt's family have set up a GoFundMe page that is linked in the Guitar Smarts link tree in the description of this podcast. And we at the Guitar Smarts podcast would like to invite each and every listener to consider donating towards this fund that could well save the life of one of the brightest guitar talents of our generation. Now is the time, folks. Head on over to the link in the description to find the GoFundMe page. Donate what you can. Your donation could save a life. Thank you. Enjoy the podcast. Greetings and welcome to another Guitar Smarts podcast. We are 20 shows into this new podcast adventure and this week we are taking our pick of some of the highlights from the first 20 shows. If you are not familiar with this podcast, then this is a great one to listen to. We have snippets from a range of our episodes, including the introduction episode, the Desert Island Gear Challenge, Guitar Car 101, Guitar Practice and Music Theory, and our guest conversations with Andy Rudd, Damien Lodrick, Matthew Lake, and also Matt Long. If you like what you hear, go back and have a listen. And if you have been with us all along, then thanks so much again for listening. And remember to go back and give some of those older episodes another listen. Tell us what you've enjoyed so far. Tell us what you think you would like to hear in the future. And if you have any questions for us, you can send your questions and comments over to our social media pages. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash guitar smarts. And we're on Instagram as well. Our handle there is at guitar underscore smarts. Like and subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app so you don't miss a future show. And once again, thanks for listening. Here's to the next 20 episodes. That's enough waffling from me. Let's get to it. Well, let's let's make a start. All right, mate. Let's introduce ourselves, I guess, for the first time. Yeah. So, so we so we should we should give an intro of who we are, shouldn't we? And, and yes. why we like talking <laughs> why we like talking about guitars all the time. Who are we? Uh, so. Do you want to go first? Do you want me yeah, to go first? I'll make a start. So I'm Matt. I'm a, and I've made a note here to specifically say that I'm a non-professional guitarist, not an amateur guitarist. <laughs> I think there's a <laughs> yes, distinction mate. between the two. Difference. I'm a non-professional guitarist. I've been playing for about 25 years, um, and I, I'd never really had a real um, in, intention to be a professional guitarist. Anyway, there was a period of time in my 20s when I thought, you know, I'm going to go and study music and become a professional guitarist, but uh, I realised it wasn't for me. I didn't want to do it. I enjoyed it too much to want to make a, a job out of it, you know. Hmm. So that's, you know, I've been playing for about 25 years. What inspired me to play? So the first thing I saw, which fascinated me about a guitar, was in my dad's record collection he had the Eric Clapton Slow Hand album, which just oh. it's just a picture yeah. of Blackie, yeah. the, the Strat, you know. I thought, oh, that looks incredibly cool. What is it? It's a guitar. And then that was around the time that Unplugged came out. So mm. Clapton Unplugged and then From the Cradle were the two albums that made me want to play guitar. 
and that says a lot about my inspiration, I guess, as a guitarist and what kind of, you know, how I like to play and what are things I reference when I'm thinking about playing guitar. But since then, you know, 25 years later, my, um, you know, my influences are much more eclectic than that. I love a lot of different types of music, a lot of different styles, genres, ages, old and new. Um, and I guess this for me is about having those conversations about music and, and about guitars and about equipment and everything that you want to geek about and talk about. Um, and that's, that's me, I guess. I'm going to ask you more about that in a minute. Yeah, you I, should. I think you're, I think you're, I think you're being <laughs> modest. You, you've, you've been very, you've been very modest. And having having played and gigged with you for for a number of years, um, there, there's a lot more underneath that that modest statement that, you, that you've <laughs> said. Uh, and I know having. Uh, spent many a, uh, a year gigging with you, but then also chatting to you, you know, as we set up or between sets and things that, you know, this is, this is a real passion for you and and your, your knowledge of the subject is great. And you've got, a, you know, you've got a really nicely rounded view of, of, of what it means to be a, you know, a performing musician, as well as a good sensibility and very good technical knowledge about gear and things. And we're, we're going to get into all of that at, at some point for sure. Um, I mean, for, for, for me, yeah, similar, right? So I've been playing for 25, 26 years. Um, and I think it started for me as something where at school you had to pick an instrument. And so for me, that one seemed to be the coolest. So I just chose it on that ground um, and, <laughs> and nothing else. And then realized quite quickly that um, it was going to take some 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 effort and some hard work to try and play the kind of things that um, I'd grown up listening to, right? My house was filled with music growing up for my parents. My, uh, although the, this wasn't the reason that, it, that I wanted to, to, to play guitar. It was just I had to pick an instrument. It wasn't until later years that I developed my own music taste. But, um, and then, you know, I, it, I think after I've been playing for a couple of years and had some kind of basic classical guitar training, it was... I put down the guitar for a little bit and it wasn't until my early teenage years when I think the whole grunge scene started to hit and uh, Metallica's Black Album of all things came out that I was kind of inspired to pick the instrument up again and start to see if I could play some of it. And I remember sitting down with the tab book. So this is pre-YouTube, this is pre-internet. Um, I think I might have had a copy of it on CD, but it might have been on, on tape. And in any case, I remember sitting down with this nylon string classical and, and spending months basically learning Metallica's Black Album from a tab book and, and with a hi-fi on a, a nylon string classical guitar. And that kind of, for me, showed me that this was something that I was really into because trying to do that was quite hard work. Yeah. Um, and then it, and then it just went for there. After that, I was I was hooked. I was addicted, and I started to develop my own music taste and get into different guitar heroes and people's style that I liked. And um, and then I think that background of growing up in a house filled with music and my dad's taste of you know Hendrix and Clapton and Queen and all of that started to Santana. Huge. My dad's a huge Santana fan. That started to kind of play a role in in what I started to get into on on guitar. Um, I worked in guitar shops growing up. Uh, soon after that, I, I started to get into the real geeky side of it. And that's where my love of um, kind of repairing, setting up and trying to understand the technical side of how a guitar is put together and how it functions um, kind of came about is working in guitar shops and spending time with, uh, you know, guitar techs um, and, and watching uh, these 
you know, uh, it was one particular individual um, who owned this music shop who really schooled me in that, and and you know, um, and then got into gigging and 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 you know, it's it's something that is a huge part of my life and and a passionate part of my life, and it's wonderful to you know to be able to in in now adult years have that ability to to go out and play when we can and also collect gear and uh, and and keep learning about it that's the thing mm. that you can you there's so much to to learn um in terms of gear technology music theory setting setting up instruments and collecting them so yeah that's that's kind of my story yeah. there's always something shiny and new isn't it oh it always <laughs> is it always is it always is you can go through the criteria in a minute, but basically what okay. you said to me is, right, it's it's Christmas and you got a present from Santa uh, and you're going to get a permanent vacation to your very own desert island. And I thought that, that does sound good, bearing in mind I am longing for a beach holiday right now. During COVID, I was like, oh, that sounds like idyllic. Oh, me too. Um, a man after my own heart, you then, you then wrote to me and said, provided will be all the food and water you need, Great. Shelter, electricity, sun cream, uh, and endless supplies of guitar strings. Great. So, so the basics are covered, right? <laughs> so, yeah. What else is needed? We, what else, we, we need to tell Santa before we go what our desert island guitar rig needs to be. And it will be there waiting for us. How tantalizing. Uh, right. And then you gave me a list of, of, of the difficult choices we needed to make. So why don't, yeah. why don't, you, why don't you go through those? Okay. So here's, here's, the cho- here's the choices we have to make. Guitars. We can have one electric guitar. And we can have one acoustic guitar. Effects, pedals, just what you can get on a standard size pedal train. So it's not, you know, you can have, it could be all drive pedals, can be all whatever you want, but <laughs> it's just got to be a single pedal board, right? Guitar amp can be a combo, amp head, anything, just any mm-hmm. single guitar amp. Albums as well. There's no internet on this island. I know there's electricity and endless supplies of sun cream and stuff, but there's no internet. So no streaming services. You can take three albums with you and then a wild card which is anything <laughs> music related so it can be an accessory it can be um you know whatever it can be another instrument it could be anything Ariana Grande <laughs> it could be a wild card yeah so shall we start with guitars my electric guitar would be an original 1980s Clapton signature strat mm. with lace sensor pickups mm. right, in pewter not that the colour matters when you're on a desert island. Of course it does. Of course it I always does. wanted that, like that, um, that gunmetal grey finish yep. that he had on. <clears throat> on it's one of the colours you can still get the Strat in now. But like when yep. I first saw him playing a Strat in kind of that um, Twenty Four Nights era, mm-hmm. he was playing mm-hmm. a pewter Strat. Now in the eighty-seven, yep. eighty-six time, yep. he was playing a pewter. It's just such a great colour on a Strat. But for me, particularly. I prefer the sound of his lace sensor pickup guitars, you know, the, the, the pickups that didn't have any pole pieces on them. They were just, yeah. you know, flat white kind of. I know. Exactly. I've always wanted one of those. Though it's one of the guitars I still look at on eBay occasionally. And those original ones, even now when they come up, they're still, you know, they're still going for the same price as the new ones. Yeah. But there's a not only is that a guitar that I really like and I've always kind of coveted, you know, over as long as I've been a guitarist. I was thinking kind of practically as well that because it's um because it's lace sensor pickups and it's got that mid boost in it mm-hmm. as a really versatile 
tone machine you know get all the yeah. strat sounds out of it you yeah. know that boost and those really those active pickups will really help sound like humbuckers if i wanted to as well a bit of a rock machine so i was kind of like yeah that's a versatile guitar it's a great it's a great choice the finish yeah. as well i love that i know exactly what you mean electric guitar right. Kieran, electric guitar have? okay so the first thing that came to mind right when you sent me this was Okay, I'm a man that likes options and I'm a man that gets bored easily. So first thing I'm going to go for is a, is a Line 6 Variax with, uh, the very, with, the, with, the, with the accompanying floor pedal. And literally then I will have cheated my way through this task and I will have literally got an approximation of everything. So on those days where I get bored and fancy playing sitar, it will be there at the flick yeah. of a knob and I'll have every you. amp and every speaker. Um, and as you know, I gigged this rig for quite a long time because I have a, ver a very beautiful Variax 7. Yeah, and all of the accompanying Line Six pedal board stuff. Um, neither of which I've played for, for many years now. Uh, and it wasn't it wasn't because I then saw your footnote that says it, it can't be anything you own. I saw that later <laughs> that I then stopped myself and went, hold on a minute. You're going to a desert <laughs> island. This is going to be the last electric guitar you ever have and play. Then my heart took over. Right, that was my head choice. Yeah, then my heart took over and went, no, 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 yeah. So then it was, is it going to be a Strat or is it going to be a Les Paul? And again, I think the Strat is a beautifully versatile instrument. And I've gigged Strats way more than I've gigged Les Pauls, perhaps, potentially. But it's um, a Les Paul is what I've idolized and aspired to own for so many years. And even now I own a few. I still just love a Les Paul. Just there, there is something that inspires me to pick up the guitar and play when I see a Les Paul sitting there mm. on a guitar stand, right? I don't mm. know if other, other people have this, but I can, I can be kind of just sitting around doing nothing and I can just look at a Les Paul on a stand and the carved top and all of it and I can just go, oh, I just want to play guitar. I just want to pick it up and play. It's yeah. just, it yeah. evokes so many emotions for me just looking at the thing before I even get up and, and I pick it up and play. Ah, uh, couldn't agree more. I couldn't um, agree more. So... It has to be a Les Paul, which which I you know I think is an is an interesting choice. Bearing in mind, I like I love single coil sounds, and I'm a huge Stevie Ray fan and John Mayer and mm. Clapton and and all of that. But a, a really nice like 1960s or 59 reissue. It doesn't need to be an original, you know, 59 or 60s for me. Mm. Something something you know of a reissue around the 59 60s, so late 59 60s, where the neck profile started to slim out a little bit mm. from the kind of uh, earlier 59 models as they were kind of transitioning to the 60s style neck profile but not not as slim as that uh, a light a light one I, i've got heavy les pauls and i've got weight relieved ones as well i actually like a bit of weight relief in a les paul not too mm. much so that it mm. feel so it doesn't feel like a like a proper les paul but i think there's something quite nice about a, a slightly more resonant weight relieved les paul Either 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 a heritage cherry or even a gold top. I love a gold top Les Paul. I don't own one. Yeah, me too. Um, but I've I've been I've been yeah. after a gold top Les Paul for a long time. It's got to be open coil humbuckers for me. I just love the look of of open coil, either really? black or yeah, yeah. I love it. Just love. I, I again, I've got Les Pauls that I've got the the kind of nickel covers on, which look great. Mm. But again, for me. 
open coil, <clears throat> either black or zebra humbuckers on it. The Slash Alnico to uh, Seymour Duncan pickups, they're a brilliant set of pickups and they'll do rock brilliantly, but they're very versatile yeah. as well. But, you know, there's some great pickups out there. There's there's loads. I've had a few different Seymour, Seymour Duncan uh, humbuckers. So the 57 Classics are a great pickup um, mm. as well. So... That would be the electric guitar of choice. Just a really nice Les Paul. It doesn't have to be a you know a, a two hundred and fifty thousand fifty nine original. Just a decent reissue. Um, with a, and and I would. There is so much tone potential between those pickups and tone knobs that I would yeah. be happy with that. I think. <laughs> Let's move on to albums. So I said three albums, right? Three albums is hard. Five might have been a better number, but I'm going to say my three. Uh, yeah. And I reckon you can guess. I reckon you're not going to be surprised by two of them. Right. So, so I reckon so one, that you uh, – do, you want, me, do you want me to guess? I won't, I won't tell you what the go exact on, album guess. is. I am okay. betting – I'm betting somewhere on there is a Clapton album. Of course. Yes. I have thoughts as to what the other two might be, but I'm not going to ruin it. I'm going to write down <laughs> okay, in front of me what. now, and I promise you I won't change it, <laughs> but I'll write down the other two artists – Okay, right, I finished. I finished writing it down. Go All on. right. But I, okay, but I know good. there's going to be okay, Clapton so, in there somewhere. Album number one, From the Cradle, Eric Clapton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great it's, it's, it's like the album that got me playing guitar. It's the first yeah. album that really made me think that I, that I loved music. Um, and yeah. still love that album now. Still, I could still listen to that front to back every day without ever getting tired of it. Number two, Continuum, John Mayer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wrote, I wrote John Mayer down. I didn't know which yeah. album you'd go for, but I wrote John Mayer down as one of my... And for a number of reasons, not just because, you know, a huge John Mayer fan. I first listened to that in about 2007. I think it was a 2006 album. But in 2007, I probably hadn't really played guitar at all for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And it was that album that got me back into playing guitar. So in a way, that's kind of... That album had the same effect on me as From the Cradle did, but yeah. later in my life kind of thing. And the last one is Abbey Road by The Beatles. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of the only perfect albums of just perfect songs. They so are great. They are really great choices. Um, so I'd grown up listening to a lot of the kind of Cream Clapton stuff and I hadn't, I hadn't heard of any of the, the kind of uh, Blues Breakers stuff um, and it was all of the kind of Journeyman era and all his more kind of um, pop rock kind yeah. of stuff. And I'm obviously phenomenal guitarist. And I was I was going through a massive Stevie Ray period in my kind of late teenage years, and I was waxing lyrical to another friend of mine who's a guitar player, just going, "This, you know, Stevie Ray is the epitome of of, of where the blues is at." He'd said, "Yeah, yeah, but you know, Stevie's great, but he said he's not a patch on Clapton." And I was like, "Yeah, Clapton, yeah, he's he's amazing. He's a brilliant guitarist, but he can't he can't play the blues like Stevie Stevie Ray." <laughs> I mean, he can play the blues, but he can't play like Stevie Ray. And and my friend said, "Have you have you ever heard from the Cradle?" I was like, no. Mm -hmm. And so he went, do yourself a favour. And, and he lent it to me. He put it in my hands and he said, go home tonight and listen to this and then tell me what you think. And I, I, I called him up at like one in the morning. I'd been listening to it all night. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I am such a fool. What are your choices, dude? Um, okay. Do you want to guess any of them? Could you guess any of them? Oh, or artists? I, reckon, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm thinking maybe a Guns N' Roses album is in there somewhere. Stevie Ray, possibly. Um, <laughs> go on. You, you know go me well. It. You know me well. <laughs> so, uh, top of the list is Appetite uh, by, by Guns oh. N' Roses. It, Appetite for Destruction. It is, for me, it is the seminal rock album of, of kind of my youth. And 
one of the albums that just inspired me to play guitar. You know, uh, for me, it is just an evergreen album. I can't listen to Sweet Child of Mine anymore or Paradise City or any of those tracks because I've just listened to them too much. And yet every time they come on, I still mm. listen to them with with incredible passion and just love the, the kind of... Uh, the songs so I, it's an evergreen album I just can't get tired of it um, I don't listen to it that often now but every time it comes on or I do listen to it for me it just it's evocative of yeah. why, I, why I play guitar the guitar tone that I love for rock and it's my youth then I might have cheated with the next one I might have cheated <laughs> with the next one is so, it possible to cheat choosing another I, one well I, maybe maybe tell me you tell me what don't, you think. don't tell me it's the greatest hit well it kind of is <laughs> it kind of is see yeah, see that's it, okay see, that's how you okay. cheat <laughs> well it's not a greatest hit but to me it is one of the best live albums and it's john mayer's where the light is ah oh, yeah so it Super. is kind of a greatest hit but mm. it's a greatest hits of three different parts right there's there's the acoustic set that he does on his own first and mm. foremost which is just a tour de force of you know solo <laughs> acoustic guitar playing and singing it's just that, that in itself neon a lot yeah just ridiculous you know uh, that in itself would would make for a worthy choice in this yeah then he does up a notch to the kind of trio with uh steve jordan and pino Pino paladino just playing some great three-piece bluesy kind of you know jams and and great tunes and then if that wasn't enough after a brief interlude we get the full kind of john mayer band and greatest hits i think that you know just watching that and listening to that uh, and not only because of the 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 kind of journey you go on with the the songs from his career but also just hearing those different setups of bands and things i think is just an incredible Uh, album that's i I, again i completely agree yeah for me that 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 ticks my john mayer box and it also ticks um you know, music, musicianship and my John Mayer box. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't want that? This is it. This is the final choice I agonized mm-hmm. over. And again, my head kicked in and, and, and said, okay, you're going to put Stevie Ray in. You're going to put Clapton's Unplugged album in, you know, Texas Flood or, or Clapton Unplugged or um, Queen, you know, uh, what, mm. what's going in there? And, I've, you know, it's, it's agonizing, right? Uh, and I uh, settled on a really controversial one, but Michael Jackson's Thriller. did not expect that I really did not expect that and that is such a brilliant choice that's a really oh what an album well you know Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson in terms of the production I I will it was either either that one or Off the Wall Mm -hmm. Um, but Mm -hmm. just listening to those two albums and the production and I hear something different every time in those Mm -hmm. tracks um, and I've listened to that album since I was, you yeah. know, six, seven years old. And mm. every time I pick up on something different or, you know, a chord progression that, you know, piques my interest or just the way in which they've, you know, uh, built and layered a song. And I think it's just a great album. And um, there's some amazing, amazing songs on there. And it's very mm. evocative of a period of, of my youth. Mm. Um, and I think it's just a brilliant addition to those three. It gives it, it gives a, a, a different, a different mood and a different feel. Yeah, those are my three. Choice. Those are my three. So this week, um, we thought it would be a good idea to have a chat about some of the things that I think every guitarist should know about guitar setup. 
I think there's eight basic parts of guitar setup that every guitarist should feel comfortable doing. Cool. So let's make a start. So eight basic tasks. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to try and make this fun and rather than just make it a list. Cool. What I also did in, in kind of uh, just a reflection of, of today, because a lot of this I've kind of gained as knowledge and it's become second nature to me now, is I tried to see what resources and things were available on the internet that I could direct people to, to say, well, look, if you want to have a, a read about this, have a look. Um, certainly websites like uh, Stu Mac um, have great information on them and some really good videos and tutorials that people can follow up on if they want to learn more about it. Um, but what I also learned when I was prepping and kind of thinking about how to explain all of this years of knowledge uh, to, to people for this podcast was there's a lot of really bad information out there on the internet. Oh, really? Stuff. Yeah, and I hadn't really appreciated it because it's been years since I've looked up, you know, and, and read, you know, how do you adjust the trust rod? Because I, I know how to do it. I've been doing it for years. Um, or how do you, uh, I don't know, how do, you, how do you set the intonation correctly and all those kind of things and some of the stuff that I've been reading online uh, over the last kind of day or two it's just it's just plain wrong or just not very good advice so um, well don't forget Karen the internet is the place where the truth goes to die so <laughs> in all areas of life <laughs> This, this is this is true this is true but these are on some relatively reputable websites as well like so you probably want to know what the eight basic steps are yeah let's go uh, through let's 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 right. let's, let's, let's uh, work our way through your tips to guitar technical freedom right uh, let's see how much uh, see see how many uh, how many of these we we we, we get through we get right through. so yeah the eight we're going to try and at least nail the eight today and if we cool. do a follow-up on the intermediate and advanced stuff then, then great but step, step number one and it will be of no surprise to you you've already mentioned it mm -hmm. changing your strings Right. Changing the strings, yes. Changing absolutely. the strings on your guitar, which I remember when I got my first guitar, um, I kind of, it was daunting. I was like, I didn't know where to begin with changing strings. Yeah. So, you know, it might sound like an obvious and basic one and something that anybody listening to this podcast is, should be doing. But I, 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 can, I can imagine there are some people that are just really not comfortable changing strings. I still get um, it wrong. I'll admit to that now. You? There are still times for me where, actually, the last time I changed the strings on my Les Paul, I finished changing it, I got it all done, and... Um, played it for about two minutes and the first string just came off at okay. the machine head. Obviously I, um, I think I'd either cut it too short or I'd not wound it properly. I just thought, you know, I, I actually just kind of stick the string in, leave a, leave a bit of excess so I know I can get wines on it and then just kind of wind it on whilst keeping it under pressure with my finger kind of thing. But I don't, okay. I don't know what I'm doing wrong really if I am doing something wrong. So Here's, All right, here's so where we learn the secrets. Uh, so, well, let's let's take that then as a, as a starting example. There is, and and this will depend on the on the kind of how the string attaches to your particular machine head. If it's on mm -hmm. a, like a a Les Paul style kind of tuning peg, or, or kind of there's lots of different Fender style ones depending on how they they kind of mount the string yeah. onto that. But let's use your Les Paul for example then, because the same principle of what I'm going to say applies to every uh, guitar machine head in terms of how you attach a string figure out or learn what the locking uh principle is for attaching a string to your machine head and by that i don't mean have locking machine heads i mean there is a way you can wrap a string around the tuning post um, that will effectively lock it so that even if the string isn't up to pitch 
as if you pull on it as a loose string, it, it will lock and it will not, um, hmm. you know, come free of, of okay. the, the tuning head. That's the first step, right? Is so on your Les Paul, this is going to be quite difficult to describe uh, verbally without having a guitar to it's, kind of illustrate th- to people. It's a through post. Um, yeah. yeah, it's right. a through post. So yeah. what I would do on a Les Paul is I would obviously put the string through the tailpiece. Mm-hmm. Um, the ball end will obviously slot into the, into the stop tailpiece. It yeah. goes over the saddle uh, piece there use that as a guide to keep it in it doesn't matter if it pops out during this process you can you can always re realign it into the saddle obviously pull the string up the length of the neck and then what i do is i turn the tuning peg so that the through hole on your tuning peg is at 90 degrees to the to the neck Right. Right. So okay. If that, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. So, so, so the string it, isn't travelling straight up through the post correct. in one straight line. Okay. It has correct. to turn at ninety degrees to go through the post. Okay. Exactly right. So then guide the string along through the nut, wrap it around the inside of the tuning post, mm-hmm. so that it, the string then comes around and then towards the outside and then threads back through at that ninety degrees. So do you not take the string straight through the post when no. you're doing? No. You you put. No. A wind on yourself first and then it's not even a, it's not even a full wind it's probably about a half a wind if anything because oh. it's the, the string is going um basically through the nut following inside the uh tuning post mm-hmm. it wraps around and then if you imagine we've put that tuning post at 90 degrees the hole at mm-hmm. 90 degrees so we, the end of the string will then come back around and then thread through Mm -hmm. Uh, the uh, outside of the uh, tuning post through the hole. And at that point, if you pull the string, the length of the string up and lift it, it will be locked. It'll be locked in place. Really? Yeah. And then you can start winding. Right, okay. So each tuning, each tuning post is going to have its own peculiarities about how the string mounts onto it. As you said, on the, on your machine has on, on your Les Paul, it's a, it's a through, it's a through post. So that's, the, that would be the way to lock it on that. Well, my, my strat isn't, my strat is the no. vintage kind of fender where you go down into the post rather than through right. the post. Okay. So same principle on that one put the string through the through the saddle um uh on on your uh strat it'll probably go through the through the trem block up over uh through the body over the saddle mm-hmm. then on the on the fenders what i do for that because again there's a there's a neat little trick to finding how much string length do you need because your string is invariably going to be really long mm. um and you've got to poke it down onto the top end right of the yeah. of the tuning post so a little rule of thumb on those ones is take the string length um, and say let's say we're restringing the uh, I don't know the low E measure up to uh, the the two tuning posts ahead from that so to the D measure, measure the length of the string to the D and cut there all right. That'll be plenty. That'll be plenty of string length now to work with. Okay. Um, right. So you've you've then measured an appropriate length of string because you know a, a string coming out of a, a of a packet. If you then try and poke that that end 
of, into that low E tuning post and then start w- wrapping it around, you're going to end up with like 50 winds of string on your yeah. tuning post, right? Yeah. It's too long already. Right? And it's not, and, and more importantly, it's not going to lock properly before we start putting the, the wraps around the tuning post mm-hmm. because there's too much string length there to play with. And yeah. my principle is, is always lock that string in some way, just using the mechanics of the tuning post and the string before you then start applying your winds. Don't rely on the winds going around as, as the bit that keeps your string Mm -hmm. uh in place so So, tool alert here snips so this is the first tool i guess we're looking at here that a guitarist should have is a pair of snips of some kind not scissors or anything and it doesn't have to be expensive i mean i have one of these obviously you can't see it but i keep one of these which is for people listening because nobody can see this it's a string winder for winding my string but it's also a cutter that will cut my strings that does a good job and if you've got an acoustic it pops out your little your bridge pins bridge pins as well Great. Yeah, yeah there's loads people. of them available on Amazon or whatever. Planet yeah. Waves do a bunch. You can find loads on, on the internet. But absolutely, tool number one that you will need is a decent set of string snips to, in this instance, uh, what we're talking about is cut, cut, cutting the strings to length. I know some mm. people like to leave inordinate amounts of <clears throat> string loose once they've put it on. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not really a fan of that. Cut it, cut it to length. So on your strap... And once you've got measured the right length of string, so you've taken the string length, you've measured two tuning posts uh, ahead of it to get the right length of string, you've cut the string, pop it uh, again, adjust the tuning post so that it's at, at 90 degrees um, to, 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 the, to the neck, um, pop it down into the hole and wrap it around. Uh, again, it's, it's not even a full wind. It's like three quarters of a, a wind around the top of the of the uh, post to get your first wind. But then if you've done it correctly, you'll have created a kink and um, a lock with the string first. Yeah. So that again, if you pull, it won't it won't come out of the mm-hmm. of the tuning post. So that's that's the first key thing to stopping string slippage and tuning issues. Um, or in what in, in the extreme case, what you found on your Les Paul when you restrung it, as soon as you started tuning it, it just popped out. Yeah. Um, and I had, a, I had a fairly decent number of wines on it. I think what mm, I've done mm. is um, I hadn't done that locking thing properly. And also, I think I potentially cut the excess off too close to the tuning peg afterwards. Yeah. And I think maybe yeah. it just slipped out under tension. Well, this is the thing that often happens as well. And if you've locked the string correctly, you can actually cut off all the way up to the tuning post and, mm-hmm. and it won't come out mm-hmm. um, when you start tuning it because the lock is um, you know, behind, you know, mm-hmm. where, where you're way behind where you're cutting. It's actually the lock is formed at that first kink around the mm-hmm. tuning post. So it, so it mitigates a couple of different things. But mm-hmm. certainly if you haven't locked it, it doesn't matter how many winds you put around there. If you end up cutting it uh, off the excess, too close um it, it will just slip back through and it will just ping off so mm-hmm. so there's a handy a handy little tip i mean we could we could spend hours talking about the different you know locking yeah. ways and different <laughs> tuning posts but that's not going to make for, for a lot of fun so the first tip is really get yourself a decent set of string snips and figure out for your machine head uh mm-hmm. for your p- tuning post what's the right way to lock the string is onto that tuning post before you even start wrapping uh, and tuning the, the okay. string up to pitch it makes a big difference and will save you a lot of heartache down the line when you're trying to stretch in those strings and uh you know with tuning stability and, and things like that how often you change your strings is kind of down to how how much you can afford to change your strings and how often how, you play yeah how often you play how often yeah. you sweat i think that's pretty common knowledge 
Andrew Rudd, thank you very much for joining us. Are you, are you okay? I'm good, thanks. Are you well? Good. Fantastic. Why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Because we're, we're having a bit of a conversation now about what it means to lead a band. So uh, the band, I guess, uh, the original Roadrunner was started off... Uh, like many 17-year-olds who love music, just wanted to make a lot of noise and uh, be famous. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, I put a local ad in the Kingfisher Music in Fleet, um, looking for a, a band. And like any typical 17-year-old back then, um, what, I'm 42 now, so fair, fair way back. Um, I think the ad was along the lines of um, guitarist, bassist, drummer wanted for Oasis Hendrix Clapton style band <laughs> uh, so, so all, all genres yeah um, <laughs> pulled those out of a bag <laughs> yeah um, that was just on your iTunes list at the time well it wouldn't have been iTunes back then would it it would have been like your mixtape or your CD CD player it was it was the typical typical thing that everyone was doing um, put it in and within um, a few weeks the uh, had a f- load of people um, get in touch, and we were we were rehearsing in Hook Scout Hut, um, which I managed to uh, to get for free. Although the acoustics were absolutely awful, just imagine booming everything you played just boomed around the room. Um, but we had a uh, I don't know a bassist called Bob Francis, who um, I, I can't remember how old. I remember thinking at the time he was very old, but he was probably my age now. Uh, so he was probably in his <laughs> 40s. And then a guy called, um, I think it was one of the one of the Payne brothers, the two of them, Dan, he, he was playing guitar. And then we had a, we had a drummer as well. Um, oh, I can't remember drummer. Drummer was an old, old guy as well. He was into his rock bands. And uh, anyway, we had a blast. It was good fun. Sounded terrible, I'm sure, if we'd recorded it. And after the rehearsal, Bob took me aside. He was in a couple of other bands and he, he gave me a cassette tape uh, and it was, um, it was Dr. Feelgood. And he said to me, look, I don't, you know, I know this is your band, um, but I just, just wondered whether, you know, want to give this a listen. This is some really good, good music. Um, and at the time, really, I was aware of blues music, and but not never heard of Dr. Feelgood, wasn't really tuned into that kind of uh, genre. And uh, he said, you know, there's a lot of bands out there that are doing what, what you want to do. So Clapton, Oasis, Hendrix. He said, why don't we be a bit different? And he said, have a listen, let me, let me know what you think. And, and that's kind of how it all started. You had the wisdom of somebody older in your band to help kind of guide you in that. When was the point when you saw that as being um, a beneficial thing to do? When did you realise that being a bit different or at least being something that was more defined to the audience, when did that seem to make more sense to you? Did you gig and with a new set list and you realised that it was better or...? I think at the start, I wasn't really sold on it. I, in my mind, I just wanted to play Oasis. I loved Oasis and I wanted to, that was the key thing. And I, I'll be honest, I think I put Clapton Hendrix in there just because that's what everyone else was doing. And is, it, is that because you wanted everyone... to find a good guitarist, right? So you wanted to... <laughs> <laughs> but um, Bob taught me a lot as a, as a youngster, you know, as a youngster. He was, he really sort of passed down his experience um, in the bands and eventually as you know there was some songs he suggested which i remember knocking going there's no way we're playing that and i'm singing that you know i can't stand the song i had to like the song i had to really get it so i think he was very patient and worked with me on finding the right stuff 
that I liked and was willing to take forward. And then when we gigged, I, th- I think people, well, just people were dancing and having a good time. And we were getting landlords saying to us, we like you, you're a bit different to the usual covers bands we're getting. And I remember early on that kind of resonated with me and stayed with me. And I think all the way through then, all the various lineups we've had, and it was very strong, I think. And you've, we all played a part in that, you, Kieran, Terry, Ken, when it came to um, new material, we really looked at what we were doing and what, you know, not just doing another number that everyone does. And not only we, we took that genre, we took that, that to the next level, I think, with our lineup, which is when we started taking those songs and turned them into Roadrunner style covers where you wouldn't hear another, if another band did pick it, you wouldn't hear that version because it was ours. And we, we turned some songs, I mean, Purple Rain, I mean, that is, I think personally, one of my favourite Roadrunner style um, songs. And we were, we were not re- renowned for it, weren't we? I think the thing that, um, that you've said that I think is really, really important that for somebody starting out is this ability to listen to people that are a bit more seasoned and that have gigged a bit more and got a bit more experience. So for you as a 17 year old kid to be able to take on that feedback or that advice from somebody else who had been out there already, had been in some bands, had been gigging and, and to keep an open mind about that. I mean, one of the, one of the things that I learned fairly early on, and I'm, I'm sure most people do, is that there's no better way to get, uh, you know, improve your musicianship than playing in a band, but also then to learn about things like band etiquette, what it takes to, you know, get a band up and running and surviving for as long as you manage to make a band work for Andy, which was, you know, went on for decades, right? Um, by the time I joined it, it was in a place where it had its own identity and any song that we decided to do would automatically become our own in our own style because it was a a bunch of very seasoned semi kind of professional musicians by that point. But I think that's a really insightful thing that you've kind of talked about is at an early stage when you're setting up a band and particularly if you're younger and you haven't been in many bands is to keep that open mind and listen and learn from those that, that have done this before, because there is definitely some wisdom that comes from knowing how to put together a set list, knowing what um, your audience will kind of want to, to listen to. And also knowing, you know, how to create that band identity and define that band. So it becomes something that, you know, people want to come and listen to because it is different and it's doing something different. And more importantly, that people will want to book because it, it, it kind of stands out from, from the, you know, everyday band that you would go and see down at your local pub on a, on a Friday. I mean, we, we were fortunate enough um, when we were gigging with your band, Andy, to be able to play everything from pub through to kind of, you know, big uh, kind of uh, audience gigs, which is which is brilliant, and that's because you know you'd created that band identity, and it was it was as much about putting on a show, um, and with all the lighting set up, with all the kind of stage presence, and you know to the to the outfits and everything like that. It was all thought through so that people knew when they went to a Roadrunner show, they knew what they were getting. They weren't just getting a bunch of guys turning up in their, in their jeans and t-shirts on a, on a Friday night to play through a few, you know, tried and tested covers. It was, it was, it was a proper, you know, show. Back in the early days, how did you go about choosing a set of songs and how is that different to later on in Roadrunner's life when, you know, you were more organized and we had it down? So again, it's going back, you know, I, I never knew any of this, you know, this was down to Bob again. Him, he did the set list to start off with, with me, you know, he, 
he did them though. You know, I present them, but he would be doing them with me. And he was all very much on time, you know, find out well, how long have we got? What's the typical set? And I don't, we'll probably come on to that in a bit. Uh, my uh, <laughs> my set, set lists are known to go on sometimes. His at the time, so he, he would, you know, okay, we're doing a 45 minute set. So we'll do, he said, you know, you've got to have, um, we'll, you've got to roughly guess, you know, you know, you should know roughly what each song to how long it takes. Um, add it all up, make sure you're not going over and make sure you have a, f- a handful of numbers in case they want an encore at the end. And it was pretty very basic and straightforward. I wouldn't say there was any detailed looking at the type of song and stuff. Uh, I can't remember. I mean, I think that at the end, it was generally at the end, obviously, things where people are warmed up and are dancing and you want dance, your dancier stuff at the end and maybe a, mid, some slow stuff, sort of mid-range stuff sort of placed sort of in between. And then as that developed, I, I, I mean, I really was... I used to love, I mean, set list on the train, commute back from work on the train and for every gig, I used to love playing around with them, you know, bringing in the new numbers you, you, with us. You know, I think another thing that made us different was we we started doing intros, didn't we, for gigs, guys? Do you remember? Yeah. We sort of had back. Um, we did um, um, Manish Boy. Yeah, there was always three or four songs which were that we knew we were going on after kind of thing. Yeah, you and know. that and that came from. <laughs> I mean, look, this is quite sad, but this came from. You know, this came from a bit of me, my the dream, which was never going to happen, of you know performing on the stage at the O2, and you know we were going to see all these bands i don't think i've ever shared this with you but all the, all these bands that we go and see they have their own playlists playing before yes. they go on stage don't they and yeah. they always have the same sort build up to when they come on stage and i wanted us to build this intro into road right this uh, this kind of anticipation that people knew hang on that's that's the second song before they come on if they're coming on soon and and then we did this jam didn't we around the intro to the gig which just just was fun and got us all warmed up um and then it was a case of i wanted us to to have a bang you know give me some loving has has been our opening number pretty much for years and years and years as long as i can remember right back to the start give me some loving has has been the the number that's kicked off roadrunner gigs it was you know we are here in your face uh and then you know we sort of a bit of a bit of you know a bit of your howling wolf we drop it down a bit uh and then you know maybe a couple of slow blues then we we build it a little bit just before just before the break you know you start building but you don't go too crazy um and then obviously what became a a a sort of moment in the first set was when purple rain really took off and that's all people wanted to hear we worked that into the last number of the first set and that was because we obviously had then CDs that we were then selling. So yes. we knew that that's the song that everyone wanted the CD for. So let's put it before the break. So that's when we then sell on to that. And then we, you know, so there's a lot of thinking like that going on, not just also about the songs. And then it was a case of second set. Okay. Everyone's back They're you know, excited for more. So we want to go fairly high tempo to start off with, but we don't, we're all equally don't want to knacker ourselves out. So, you know, sort of quite tempo again, maybe a little dip, a couple of favorites in the middle. And then pretty much, I mean, after about five numbers into the second set you're pretty much full pelt for us to the end and then our encores 
Where what? I mean, apologies. Where is know. the end? <laughs> yeah, the end. The end never never came. For I know you guys sometimes are begging it to stop. I mean, my no my, my my feeling around it all was we love we own, we own, we did it for the music. We love we 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 love seeing everyone dancing and going crazy and all you know. Pubs, I always had this conversation with pubs. Yes, they're paying us for the standard set, two 45 minutes and a 15 minute break or two one hours. Mm. Fine, that's what I agree with them. But I always say to them, and we we always played on. We play an hour and a half first set, hour and a half second set, if the crowd wanted it. And we just did it for the love of it. And I always made sure we had enough numbers. Um, and we just went on and on and on. And, and I, some of the, some know, of the private gigs, yeah, some of the private yeah. gigs where there wasn't that kind of like live music curfew. I, I remember going on for for plenty of time, and I remember on quite a few instances because because we were enjoying ourselves and we'd probably played for a couple of hours by then way over what we'd been allocated and you know we had we had the clients kind of saying we'll pay you more if you play for more and we were just like don't worry you don't need to pay us we'll just keep playing yeah, we'll just and then we like from the early hours <laughs> early hours yeah. of the morning uh, but um i i remember roadrunner being uh quite an interesting thing from a set list for me because i'd always uh, once i'd started getting into bands that were kind of disciplined and, and had that work ethic like like you have andy um, it was still bands that would run to a set list and they would build a set list as you're describing, you know, with the right kind of ups and downs and dynamics to kind of please an audience. But something which I now only kind of latterly appreciate because um, it was kind of quite, quite good fun as well was you had almost like a DJ mentality to the set list, which is, it is a framework. And yes, there'll be certain songs that we know we're going to finish a set with, or there are certain songs that we know we're going to open a set with, but you would always be very keen, irrespective of what type of gig it was to read the audience and anticipate their mood and, and what kind of particular genre they were after or what kind of uh, tempo they were after. And so it was not unusual. In fact, I think it was completely common for us to to look to you towards the last kind of chorus of any given song to kind of figure out what was going to be the next song because nine times out of ten it probably wasn't what was on the set list in front of you because you and, and and you know I remember thinking for for a while I was like this is this is mad I mean because from from a guitarist point of view right uh, very selfishly because that's how obviously I look at the world it's like well I need to know if I've got the right guitar if I've got the right settings if I've got all of this lined up but you soon got used to it and you appreciated the beauty of what you were doing which was actually the most important thing which was giving the audience what they needed when they needed it and, and that meant if we had to pull a, so a song from the you know three quarters of the way through the second set and drop it into the middle of the first set we all had to be prepared to do that at a drop of a hat and not take a, an inordinate yeah. amount of time to get ready to play that song which was which was and I, and I, always, I maintain that the only waste of, waste of energy that Andy ever expelled on any gig was gaffer taping up the set lists behind the speakers. Because, <laughs> <laughs> because after three songs, it was all pointless information. <laughs> I sent you that video the other day of me listening to that Huey Lewis and the News song. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was a back you sent me a video time. going, yeah, check out the solo check for the this. Song. And, uh, and uh, oh, it's, a, it's a great solo. It's, it's just it's yeah. a song I've known for years. It's, it's So if you're listening, go and check out um, the song Back in Time by Huey Lewis and the News. Obviously, it's from the Back to the Future soundtrack. But it's got a guitar solo in it that is just... It's just a beautiful guitar solo, melodic. It's actually, it's actually a brilliant example of using the Mixolydian scale and playing over the chord changes because it's just the chord changes are just basically D and C, 
Okay, so that's classic D mixolydian, and the whole song, the whole guitar solo, you actually realise as he's playing, he's playing the chord notes. That. But regardless, it's just a great guitar. So I, I sat down and learned that. There's definitely parts of that solo that is new to me, even after all this time. So it's something I'll assimilate, like I said, into my playing of moving between scales and moving between positions. So that's how I like to practice. I like to take things that move me and try and learn how to do them. Even if it's simple, it doesn't have to be something that's out of my reach technique-wise, just something I've not played before. I think you mentioned something really interesting and important in there, though, because I, I agree with you, right? I don't generally set myself practice goals or, or a practice regime, but I'll be playing guitar for anywhere between you know 10 and 60 minutes a day if I can slot it in right and there'll be some days where I, where, where I don't play because work's busy or whatever and um, obviously with COVID at the moment we're not gigging and things like that so, so it's a bit of a struggle but the thing that you mentioned that was quite uh, important I think and not to be overlooked is if you've heard something and you think oh, I really want to learn that and I really want to, to kind of play that great that's that's a that's a brilliant way to sit down and start practicing that particular piece or that particular excerpt that you want to learn. But what you mentioned was, uh, and this is the bit that I need to challenge myself with more because my my theory is not at the the, the best level, right? And and I've been lazy with it over the years. But you kind of talked about the mixolydian mode within that solo, right? If you can stretch yourself to not just learn the piece or the or the or the solo or whatever it is that that you want to do to assimilate it into your playing and to get that technique and and some of those licks into your kind of library, but also challenge yourself to understand some of the theory behind that piece so that you can reapply it in different positions or in different keys or just kind of have a better understanding of why it sounds the way it does. Because then you're practicing not just kind of your your finger memory around licks or you know a new technique, be it you know whatever's in that solo that you know appeals to you technique wise to replicate. You're also then building in your theory knowledge, and that's the bit that I find a bit challenging, honestly, because I haven't got that that basis of of music theory you know under my belt. You know, do you think about the, the the music theory while you're learning these new bits or new pieces or or doing that kind of practice as you as you call it? It depends. I, I do think it's important to have an understanding of theory, but it depends on what you want to achieve as a musician. I mean, the thing about learning guitar is that you don't need to understand theory to learn it. We both got to a point where we were proficient in our instruments before we understood anything about theory. But there's a reason why things sound good and there's a reason why some things sound bad, right? If you play a G chord followed by a C chord, how many songs have you ever played in your life? A G, C and D? <laughs> Hundreds. 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 Why is it that some chords always sound good together and some chords always sound bad together? Why is it that... Why is it that I can uh, I can't play? Why why can't I play something like A flat minor pentatonic over an E minor song? It doesn't sound right. You know, we know we know what to play over certain songs and keys. And we know where those scale positions are. But it does help you to understand why those things sound good and why some things sound bad, right? And I think it's good, you know, as any a musician of any instrument, if you know if you can play it, if you can learn a little bit more about why some things sound good, then you're just all you're doing is just arming yourself with more information. Having a better understanding of it is going to explain things you already know a little bit better, right? That's the difference. There are things that you know, like you said, because you're you're bound by the shapes that you're playing. You know where on the neck to play when you're in a certain key. You don't necessarily know why all those things work, 
you're still going to play the same way if you learn a little bit of theory, but you're just going to understand a bit better why. And hey, sometimes, like I said, that'll creep into your playing in a way that you go, well, this should work then, right? Like, for example, did you know you could, if you're playing in an E, in e minor, B, would you ever play B minor pentatonic over E minor? No. All the notes in B minor pentatonic are notes from the E minor scale as well. They're, they share the same notes. So you could play B minor pentatonic, all your B minor pentatonic shapes. You can play them over E minor as well, if you want to. It's going to add in slightly different notes. You're not going to have a minor third in there. You're going to have a ninth instead. So it's going to sound a little bit more suspended. But the B is the fifth in E minor. The minor third in B is D, which is the minor seventh in E. They, they all fit. So having an understanding of theory allows you to sometimes go, oh, actually, I can use this scale as well. This is another great challenge. And, and I love the way that you kind of um, kind of drop these on me during the course of the week. Like it just comes as a fairly innocuous text or, or message. And then and then I read it and I go, oh, that's a thinker. <laughs> that's that's, that's going to keep me awake at night. So this is the challenge, okay? You've got a local wedding to, to do a music performance for. You've got to put a band together for it. You can choose anyone. They're going to say yes because, you know, they owe you a favour. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Who do you call? And and this is this is the kind of um, setup. The band it needs to be a front man or a woman. Um, you you're going to be the guitarist, and you need to get a second guitarist. And whether you're the lead or the rhythm doesn't matter, right? Bassist, keys player, and a drummer. Okay, so it's a standard six piece kind of wedding band or five piece depends. Maybe you want the front person to also be your other guitarist. Who would you want to be in this in this perfect? covers band i've gone with a, a six-piece lineup of uh, exactly as you suggested because i think that's a really nice mix for a, for a wedding covers band in terms of drums two guitarists keys player etc right yeah. so i think so, so I've, I've gone with that i'll tell you the first thing that i did when i read that is i i made an assumption which is like because this isn't this isn't just the fantasy band of all times right i made an assumption that these people have to be alive and, and able to, <laughs> to, to come to the gig now right I actually really struggled with one particular position in the band. Yeah. Um, in terms of all, all of the people that I like are dead. So that's going to pose a bit of a problem. <laughs> uh, then I cheated, mate. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I called I, I called a friend. I phoned a friend. <laughs> <laughs> so it, I didn't say it wasn't allowed. I can, I can let that pass. Judge rules. You did. Because I, I, was, I was bored while I was doing some work calls. So I thought, I, I, wonder, I wonder what... I wonder what the other guys think of this. So, so I have, and I told them I'd give them an honourable mention, so I have to now. Um, I have a bunch of musician mates who, who I love dearly, uh, and we have a, we have a little uh, group called the uh, Meat, Rum and Music uh, Club, the MRM, right? Um, because, you know, that's the, the holy trinity in life, really, isn't it? Uh, so anyway, I pinged out this challenge to them, and it was brilliant. Because it one, it validated loads of my choices that I'd already, I'd already made because I was getting the same names coming back. And uh, these guys, these guys are uber musicians, right? So their, their opinion is, is, is solid. And, uh, but also it chucked in a few things that I hadn't thought of and I'd forgotten about a few people. So yeah, that's how I approached it. Amazing. So yours is designed by committee. 
basically. That's what you're saying. Yeah. I can see the disappointment in your face. You're like, you cheated. I tell you what, there was at least an 80% overlap between my choices and theirs. And but I'll tell I'll tell you where 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 the committee kind of ruled on this one. And I went, okay. ah, actually, you know what? That's a that's a solid call. Let's start with the drummer, okay? I'll tell you who my honorable mentions are. And I and, and again, there's a dead person in here, so I would be a terrible drummer now, <laughs> but at the best, you know, during their peak. Jeff Picaro is on this list. Yeah. As an honourable oh, mention, yeah. Stuart Copeland from yes. the Police, and my other honourable mention was Steve Jordan. I found it really hard to to choose who was going to be in the number one spot. But actually, I think the reason I chose the person who's in the band is because that's probably the drummer I've seen the most live, um, and who I think I've enjoyed the most um, because. He's been Clapton's drummer for some time. It's Steve Gadd. <clears throat> now, I think you've cheated there because you've clearly picked a Clapton drummer from his kind of touring lineup. Which, yeah, but he which wasn't the drummer up. during the Unplugged <laughs> album, which is what which is no, my thought at the true. time. <laughs> that's true. That's true. He wasn't. That's true. I, I'm a guitarist first and foremost, right? Which, which means uh, this list is easy to compile in terms of guitarists for me, but it kind of forced me to think about those drummers and those bassists and, 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 um, you know, keys players that I really like listening to and then kind of think, okay, would they work in a band? And I think the thing that is good for people to do if they're listening to this, right, is go and check out some of these names, go and go in, uh, onto Spotify or indeed go onto Wikipedia, right? If some of these names are unfamiliar to you that we're mentioning, go onto Wikipedia and then click on their, their kind of discography or, like um, back catalog of stuff that they've played on, and you will you will know these these uh, artists based on some of the records, even if you don't recognise the names that we're mentioning, because these these are incredible incredible artists. And then you know check them out on Spotify and things, and and then it will improve your kind of musical ear and sensibility uh, just beyond listening to guitarists, because then you'll start to get a feel of you know what these other um, instrumentalists add to the sound of a, of a mix and to a band that, and, and how that works with the guitarist. If you're, if you're, a, if you're particularly like I was for many years, just focused on listening and pulling out the guitar in a, in a, in a mix, um, you know, this, this is a really useful kind of uh, uh, conversation maybe for people to go and find new musicians and new music that they haven't heard of. Um, because we're coming at this almost from a guitarist point of view, but uh, about what, um, uh, the uh, we kind of love about these instrumentalists because if we were to speak to a drummer for example and ask them this question they might come up with a completely different set of names right because they're looking at it very much from a drummer's perspective or you go and speak to a bass player and go right tell me who you would put in the ultimate covers band as a bass player and you know they're going to be names that are very different i think to to the ones we chose anyway that was a that was That's a, a really good point really good point a, a slight tangent so Okay, mate. Well, <clears throat> so my the first drummer that I thought of, uh, and you'll appreciate this, was Simon Phillips because of the whole Toto piece. Of course. Right? So, yeah. so Simon <laughs> Phillips um, has been touring and playing with Toto for, for decades. And he, uh, as a drummer, I mean, people will have heard his playing even if they don't recognize the name and if you don't recognize the name it's it, it's it's no big issue i mean you probably won't even know it his name unless you're a toto fan but 
as a session drummer, he is just, I mean, he's played with, with, with everybody, right? Other honourable mention, again, so this actually came from the drummer on our uh, kind of committee group that I reached out to, right? And I, I must say, again, this is another one that kind of falls into the Simon Phillips type category. And, and that's a guy called Vinny uh, Colauta. I hope I've pronounced that right. Uh, and again, just incredible drummer with with decades of playing behind him. Played a lot Sting. with uh, Sting. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I got to say, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Probably my favourite drumming track of all time is Seven Days" by Sting. Uh, it just that it's in that five four, that odd meter in five beats yeah. per bar, and he's playing yeah. this amazing juxtaposed rhythm on. The hi hats and on the and on the and on the um, ride symbol. Uh, it's just one of my favourite songs to listen to, purely just to listen to the drumming. Superb, superb drumming. Awesome. Uh, so, but my my choice uh, mm-hmm. was Steve Jordan. Really fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so so uh, did you choose Steve Jordan? As Steve your Jordan final was one? my no. Steve Gad was my primary one. Steve Jordan was probably yeah. the closest number two on my list, mainly because he wasn't dead. And also <laughs> Stuart Copeland. I thought Stuart Copeland's one of my other favourite drummers, but I kind of thought, is he covers band material or would he just kind of go a little bit mad? So if you've just tuned in, guys, welcome to the Steve Lukather guitar show. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is episode three in the series where each week we go deeper and deeper in love with Steve Lukather. And uh, today joining us on the show is the world's number one Steve Lukather fan, uh, Damien Lodrick. <laughs> so Damien, when did you dedicate a life in music to becoming more like Steve Lukather? Is that 1990, exactly, 1995. It's fair to say he's a, he's a huge influence for you though, right? He's, yeah, absolutely, uh, yeah. I know exactly when it was. Apart from hearing Rosanna in Africa when I was a kid, it was on like Guitar Techniques or Guitarist magazine. There was, uh, I think it was Guitar Techniques. There was Dave's Gone Skiing from the Tambu oh, yeah. album. <laughs> that was the first time I heard this track. I was just blown away by absolutely everything on that track. Guitar playing was just amazing. The, the time signature that it was interesting, the drum sounds, the bass playing, the piano solo was just mind-blowing. Everything about this instrumental track just absolutely blew me away. And I wanted to find out more about this band called Toto that wasn't just Rosanna and Africa, which I really loved, but uh, I didn't know they produced stuff like that. That was just eye-opening. That's my favourite. That's my favourite Toto album, Tambu. Even just from a recording quality perspective, as an audio file, you put that on a decent hi-fi and it's it's like a reference album for me. You can just set up a hi-fi to that album because every instrument is so beautifully produced on it Absolutely. that you go, okay, this is, this is a good piece of hi-fi if it's reproducing this album in the way that I want to hear it. Um, but so, so Steve Lukather in a, in a guitar techniques album, but was he your first kind of influence that made you want to, to think about devoting your life to music? How did, how did, how did, that happened. I don't actually know that. I don't think I've ever asked you that. Is I've just always known you as a professional musician. When I was working in a guitar shop, I must have been what 17, 18 at the time, and you were a regular customer and you knew the owner. So you'd come in and we'd we'd hang out and we'd chat about guitars, we'd play guitar all day. And you were just at the time, you know, the the professional musician that came in to stock up on stuff, and then you're off to a gig somewhere that day. Or but I don't I don't remember, you know. 
ever asking you how that became your life. I've always just known you as a professional musician. At what point did that did that kind of click for you and you were like, right, that's 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 my life set now. That that is what I'm gonna do. What a question. Gosh. I think I've always known that I wanted to do music ever since I was in primary school. And uh, I started playing the piano first. So piano is my first instrument. And I didn't do very well. My, my piano teacher, Mr. Stevens, I must have been only about seven or eight, said that I wouldn't amount to anything because I just, I just wasn't interested in learning whatever it was in the music book. I, all I wanted to do was just explore and improvise and, I mean, just make sounds. I was, you know, uh, and I've, I've got, I've got, I've got a, a, an older cousin uh, who, who was a massive influence on me and only later on found out was a massive Toto fan. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, his, his influence and him seeing me seeing him play uh, Van Halen jump on the piano on my piano at home at the time was just, I want to do that. I want to play that kind of piano. I didn't want to play classical piano. Those were my first influences. So I was even being influenced by Toto, but I didn't realise it at that early age. So I, um, I, I can't go through everything. It will take take forever. <laughs> It really will. But all, re- all roads definitely lead back to Toto in some way. <laughs> Basically, <or> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, That's a T-shirt um, waiting to be printed, isn't it? All roads lead to Toto. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I, I got into, got into um, I was in a couple of bands at school playing keys. I was actually playing keys bass on on the synthesizer that we had a we had a school synthesizer there was we had uh one of my friends who who I uh who one of my school friends who played piano but he played it like a guitar so he played uh lots of chords and sung and I played the bass line on the synth and any synth parts that I needed to do on on the with my right hand uh, and we had a drummer and that was sort of the beginning of me just getting the bug we would practice every Friday after school and I, I just wanted to play music that was all I wanted to do uh and th- then that turned into a slightly bigger one where I actually learnt this was the point when my friend said to me right you're going to be the bass player in the band the actually bass player and I said okay there's I just don't know how to play the bass so he said <laughs> here's here's my bass guitar not go away and learn to play it because he wouldn't let me borrow it but I had to <laughs> I had to just learn to play it at rehearsals <laughs> Uh, once a week or twice a week, whenever we got together, obviously starting playing blues just with the A, D and E strings, because that's all I knew. <laughs> so I actually learned to play bass first and I really got into my bass playing before playing guitar, which came a couple of years later on. So um, I just taught myself to play the guitar at that point with a tape player. And I remember Matt talking about this on, you were talking about, or Kieran was about, you know, the back The then. pause button and the rewinding and the yeah. Kind of- Absolutely. I didn't have a CD player. I only had tapes. I I just remember learning um, Sting's version of Little Wing. The guitar solo ah, in that yeah. was it, it was is just wonderful. So that was one of the first things I learned. I couldn't really play many chords. I just wanted to play <laughs> solos. Yeah, that was all I wanted to do. <laughs> the cool stuff. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so uh, I, I forgot what you asked me. Well, that is why I asked you. It's like, well, yeah. how, how did you? So that's kind of where I want to go with this, right? Because I think actually, when I first met you, you were uh, you were in an, in a, an originals band, uh, yes. and you were and you were on bass, and it was a really great originals band. I must say I still have some of the uh the CD that uh you gave me of the band and the songs were just just incredible the, the female vocalist just had one of those voices that to, to this day is one of the the, the one of the nicest voices I've, I've, I've heard uh, a lot of the the local musicians testify if you if you if you want to get sharper and you need some lessons go and see Matt Right, so I thought, what a, what a, what a, what a thing we could do on the on the podcast to have a day in the life of a guitar teacher, someone that has to sit in front of students all day and, and listen to them and have the infinite patience to coach them through some of the things that we've been talking about on the podcast over the last kind of few weeks. So, uh, yeah, welcome, welcome to the show, Matthew Lake. Well, oh, thank you for having me. Brilliant, right. brilliant to have you. It's it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. So look. Um, you know, it's 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 fair to say that you are um, really held in high regard as a as a as a guitar teacher. And you know, I what I want to first kind of start off with is 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 how did you know this is what you wanted to do? How did you how did you kind of set your sights on 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 spending a life in music? I don't, it wasn't like a thing that I decided straight away that I wanted to do. I started playing guitar when I was about thirteen, and I'd played other instruments before and done the whole, I didn't practice and parents didn't want to pay for lessons. I'm not going to practice and (laughs) all that stuff. And then I found this guitar in in the roof of my parents' house that my mum played and gave up when she was a kid. And it just, I found it fascinating. I genuinely thought I'd have it wrapped up in a couple of years. I thought this would be, you know, and then the more I kind of (laughs) realised that there was so much stuff involved, the more I just got into it. And then uh, one of my first jobs was DIing potatoes at a chip shop for like two quid an hour when I was like 14. And I, I misheard that. I misheard that completely when you said DIing potatoes. At a chip yeah, shop. Yeah. Like, I was just like, how do you put, how do you put a potato into a desk? <laughs> I wasn't even allowed. I wasn't not using an amp for it. You're just putting the no, potato no. straight into the mixing desk. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely. So, so it was nothing to do with music. And uh, I was doing, it was like two quid an hour. So it was like a cash in hand kind of, and one of my mum's friends, a family friend, had a son who wanted to play guitar. Again, I don't think she wanted to kind of go down the road of getting a full-on teacher and paying full price. And I needed a bit of cash and said, do you want to teach my son for five quid an hour? And I was like, well, I was only making two quid an hour. So I started doing it, got on really, and I knew this kid for a very long time anyway. Um, he's probably only five years younger than me. Um, and then one of his friends wanted lessons and... So I did that and and then it just kind of snowballed a little bit to when I went to, and and this is all while I was at school. And then I finished school and carried on teaching and I didn't really make a thing of it. People, friends of friends just kept asking for lessons and and then I'd kind of help them with their GCC performances and stuff because that's what I did. And, And then, yeah, then I took a gap year. I went to ACM for two years. And then I took a gap year and with the idea of seeing what would happen if I just carried on. And I just met a few people along the way and got some more students. And I did, my parents were like, oh, you, you know, you're quite into this. Why don't you go? And they found a City and Guilds delivering learning course, which was very uncool at the time. I did it and I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot. And it just became one of those things where as a student, because I went on to university, I could go and work in a bar or I could teach guitar. And by that point, I was like, well, I could probably charge £10 an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's better than 
four quid, five quid minimum wage, whatever it was at the time. So it just fitted around everything. And then I just, I got a school when I was at university through, through someone I knew and it just carried on like that. It just kept going. And I really love it. I kind of, kind of decided that I really liked it. And it was a nice way to have a a normal life without having to giggle. You know, I could do all the normal things as well that I wanted to do aside from music. And it just kind of panned out like that really. And um, yeah, it's just carried on and it's just something I really love to do. That's amazing. So, so where are you at now in your kind of teaching profession? So you teach for, for schools, you have private pupils as well, right? So you're, how often are you teaching in, in any given week? So in, in term time, I'm at school. I teach in three different schools, mm-hmm. two, two junior schools and one's, one's a senior slash sixth form college. So that takes up to about three o'clock every day from 7.38 in the morning. Um, and then I teach, I've probably got about 20 private students at the moment that I fit in after school. So um, so yeah, all day, every day. And then obviously in the holidays, some school students want to carry on and some people go on holiday and you just kind of, it's a bit more flexible in the in the holidays but um but yeah so that's where i'm at at the moment just just, te- just teaching a lot actually but and and you've always I, I i the thing that i i love speaking to you about is you have a real passion for for your instrument <clears throat> i mean you're you're an incredible six string guitar player as well as bass player and you've always just come across as someone that just really loves their instrument and really loves music and 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 you know you your theory knowledge is 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 superb as well and you and you're a gigging musician so you know what what an incredible you know mix to have of, of all of those kind of different uh facets to be to be teaching to be helping people you know get better at guitar but also be out there as a gigging musician and 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 playing all the time and making making a living from it man that's 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 really cool yeah i love it i um my aim i guess when i start i always kind of knew from the when i started to look at colleges at school i kind of knew that music was the thing and at the time we went to lots of colleges looking at sound stuff because i don't know why but at the time lots of people were saying to me that's that's the that's where the living is you know learn the tech side of things and we went to acm to their open day and i just walked into the guitar room and i was like yeah i don't like i'm not into sound i just you know mm-hmm. i mean i am into sound in the sense from if a guitar makes it but i'm not i don't want to sit there for hours eqing a snare drum do you know what i mean i want to i want to yeah. play the guitar um <laughs> not there's anything wrong with that but it's just not my thing you know um no it's torture yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And my, you know, I remember my dad saying to me, you know, I don't know how this is going to go, but you, if this is what you want to do, then you should probably try and do something with it. And my aim has always been to just play and teach, make a living out of music. I don't, I didn't have anything particular that I was like, I'm going to, I'm aiming for this. My aim was just to, wouldn't it be nice to get to 65, 70 and look back at a life of guitar playing? And that's, oh, yeah. You know, that's kind well, of I've what always, I wanted. I've always kind of said to myself, you know, if you do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Well, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. And, and like, you know, it's, there are times when it is a job, you know, yeah. like anyone else's <laughs> jobs that, you know, when you have rep- like at school, particularly, you have to write reports, do parents' evenings and do perform. And it's all good stuff, but like, Sometimes you'll get the odd week where expect Christmas is the killer because you get every school wants to do a Christmas performance. So yeah. you're, you're involved, which is great. But also you've got gigs, Christmas gigs tend to be writing reports at the same time. So you get kind of like you end up with like two weeks before they break up of like just you don't go to bed. Well, I don't. I just end up going, well, I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And I've got to be here and I've got to be there. And, you know, and also obviously none of the schools are related to each other. So you have to manage that 
time on your own, you know, you know, and, and schools, they're not overly worried about what the other school is doing. They, 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 you know, they don't want you to kind of, you can't be in two places at once. Um, but yeah, so it's, um, it can get pretty, but then, you know, but then you kind of sit back and go, well, yeah, if I had two busy weeks, solid weeks, and all I did was play guitar and help people play guitar and that's not much to moan about at all, really. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I was going to yeah. say, uh, I, you are one of the hardest working uh, musicians I personally know and how full your days are. And we'll talk a little bit in a minute about how, you know, you've adapted during COVID and, and uh, the, the kind of lockdowns. Um, and I know you've just kept yourself incredibly busy and grown your business in that way, but um, I'm not going to feel too sorry for you because even though no, as hard as as hard as you work, <laughs> you still have like the coolest job that I envy so much, which is you get you get to do your passion every day, man, mm. and you get to yeah. work really hard, and you do work phenomenally hard, and you do it with a guitar in your hand 80 percent of the time, and I I just love that. I, I tell I tell people about you in my in my kind of professional career, which is very different to, to what we do on the podcast about somebody that that kind of set his mind on something that he wanted to achieve and do and make a career out of and uh and you've absolutely kind of epitomized that and uh yeah you're you're a very busy man mm, yeah it's good it's really cool i just love guitar in any shape or form really so i've got no issue with sitting with a seven-year-old learning a d chord um yeah. last last night i was teaching a guy the jump solo and that was really cool as well <laughs> That's you know, really great. so it's like you get you get wow. you get all all, and it it makes you. I don't know what other guitar teachers feel like, but I've definitely got better because of because of it. Because sometimes you get someone say, "I really want to learn this crazy metal song that's in like drop B, and it's like impossibly difficult." And you think, "Well, okay, so how am I going to do that?" You know, and then you'll find that there's nowhere online that's got uh, sheet music tabs, that, like so you're there going, right, I've got to work this out, you know, yeah. um, or work out the main riff or, you know, so it's quite good. It pushes you. It pushes you. Keeps you sharp. Keeps mm. you sharp. Absolutely. I, yeah. I think in any walk of life, right? Uh, and we've spoken about this on the podcast before, like one of the ways to get better is to put yourself into situations and play with other musicians where, you know, they keep you sharp and they keep you learning. So, and you're talking about that from a teaching perspective, it's kind of keeping you sharp by having to learn stuff that you wouldn't necessarily normally learn. And uh, mm. uh so, so what what does the most rewarding kind of student look like for you? You've spoken about two two extremes there, right? It's just you know teaching a seven year old a D chord versus teaching somebody an Eddie Van Halen solo. What 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 you know uh, gives you the most kind of rewarding feedback from from teaching somebody? Obviously, it's like as teaching the more advanced stuff is fun because when you have a student who especially one you've taught for a while so you've seen the journey from you know the the guy I was teaching last night is he's 18 I started teaching him when he was 11 and he's really gone from he's gone through all the stages not doing a lot do, you know then doing all the stuff that I didn't ask him to do then do it you know and now he's and he's we've covered it all and that's really rewarding to look back and go oh that's a mm. that's a really nice journey that we've been on and we have a nice relationship and you know what's also really nice about that kind of thing is you know I can see me ringing him up asking him to come and dep in you know once he's got a driver license and he's been to uni and all you know if he wants I'll be asking him if he wants some gigs you know so that's a really cool thing and then but I also really love it when the penny drops with anything with kids you know like kids or adults or when they've been struggling to I don't know change from c to g they do it and you're like yes well done you've broken yeah. you've broken down one barrier let's carry on you know I find the whole thing quite rewarding and even when you get 
people that don't really know what they what they want with from it or why they're doing it or or they find it really difficult and they're in a rut it's rewarding to kind of help them break it down look at it look at it differently most of the time it's looking at things a different way i think um you have to sometimes approach things in more than one way to find out how you best learn so yeah just, i think you have to you have to help people get out of their own way sometimes don't yeah you? yeah yeah and sometimes people think that people really want to be able to do this and the goal is too big it's not that it shouldn't be a goal it's just that this this goal has five subsections that you have to get through but yeah i just anyone who's just given it a good old go and like you say getting out of their own way sometimes listening to to what i have to say and, and challenging me sometimes. I've got a student who goes out of his way to find me examples of people doing things differently to how I said he should do them. Um, <laughs> and I love it. And I love it because it, it always sparks a conversation of like, so yeah, okay. <clears throat> I say, good example, Mark Knopfler. Well, he never used a plectrum. So it's all good for me not to use a plectrum. Yeah. Like, well, yeah, of course, it's totally cool. But, you know, do you want to only be able to play like Mark Knopfler or do you want to develop your own thing? So learn both, you know, but it's quite cool. And I find that really rewarding as well, just because it's like, right, you, you're challenging me here and we're going to find a way mm. for you to see that, you know, you can, if you can skin the cat in all sorts of different ways, you're going to be a more versatile guitarist in the long run, you know. Yeah, that's cool. What was it like um, getting presented that award virtually by Joe Bonamassa? <laughs> <laughs> Man, it, it was such a huge thing for me. Like Joe has been a huge influence on me. In fact, arguably, he's been the biggest influence on me. Right. Uh, and um, you know, I, I've you know met him a bunch of times. He's a super lovely guy and super smart guy, and just he's a total nerd. He really is. And just oh, like yeah. you know, just talk about anything and everything with him, guitar related and things like that. Um, so yeah, he's been a huge influence on me, and he's actually the reason why I wanted to be a professional musician with my life. Uh, after I saw him at the Royal Albert Hall in 2009, uh, after that gig, I stood up and turned to my parents and uh, I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to yeah. do this for a living and I want to play here eventually one day if I have the opportunity like, at the Royal Albert Hall. I'm just like, yeah, this is this is what I want to do. And like, I was just about to, uh, this, I was young enough that I was about to start thinking about uh, college mm-hmm. and things like that and further education, things like that. Uh, I just finished my GCSEs, I think it was around that time. And I said to them, I don't want to do normal college. Uh, I don't think that's for me. I want to go to music college and kind of actually properly uh, further my musical abilities as best I can. Um, so yeah, I really do owe a lot to Joe and to have him present this award, even like virtually, I'm just like, this is this, this is someone else. Man. This, <laughs> that's surreal, right? It's, good, that's it's, surreal. It's, it's definitely one of those things that's going to stay with me forever. Like I said, I've, I've met him a bunch of times before and he's always been really generous to me, but it's just something really symbolic to me um, that he did that. And I was just, yeah, I'm eternally thankful to him and obviously eternally thankful to UK Blues Federation and of course, everyone who voted for me and I'm absolutely gobsmacked. I really am. Fantastic. Well, congratulations again. I mean, it's a, Thank you. That's a Thank great story, much. man. I mean, starting with the Royal Albert Hall gig and then coming down yeah. to now, it's almost like a, a full circle in a way, isn't it? And yeah. It, at least it will be if you play the Royal Albert Hall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that'll be a gig I do where I'm like, I could quite, like, I did the gig, I'm like, okay, I could quite happily call it quits now because I've done the thing that I was like set out to do. I won't, but you know. 
Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, yeah, that that's like a, a bucket list kind of thing for me. And and absolutely, yeah, it's just it's just mad. I've, I've, it's been a few days now. And I'm still like I'm still kind of like pinching myself every now and again. It's like it did happen, didn't it? I'm just like, yeah, yeah, it did. It did happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it must be quite surreal. Yeah, yeah, definitely is. But it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened by accident, right? You've grafted. <clears throat> I mean, you've you've really dedicated yourself to to kind of your art, especially with like going and studying as the first part of it. But then really kind of applying yourself and getting out there and gigging and yeah. and writing as well. I mean, the quality of some of these songs is absolutely. I was just saying to to other Matt where before before you joined the call. I mean, some of these songs, they're earworms, man. They are in my head. I woke up like this morning, like uh, singing like Soul Breaker in my head. And I just got my, (laughs) that's a great track, man. And then um, uh, I was driving my car to the, to the garage to go and get some work done in it today. And uh, I don't know if you guys get this, but when you're particularly like into a tune while you're driving and the guitar face thing starts to happen and you're really (laughs) enjoying it, you're digging it, right? You're you're laughing. So I'm I'm guessing you get this. So I'm driving along like 60 or 70 and I'm like, Whoa, that is a that is a solo, man. That was, it I was, just, uh, I, yeah. I, I just imagine like people driving past the other way, looking at you, looking like a weird guy. Like, what the hell's yeah. going on? What's wrong with it? Has he been stung in the is, face is like by a, a wasp? Is there like, like a, a gas leak or something like that? Is he smelling that, something yeah. weird? I don't know. Probably, uh, probably a wasp in his car or something. Yeah. Like that. That's it. But that's 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 my thing. That's when I know. In, that's when I know I'm digging something because oh, yeah, thank that you. inadvertent thing. I, I was just yeah. This this is, and the, and you can you can hear the Bonamassa in influence for sure oh, yeah, yeah. but you've got your own style as well with it and your own tone which um and hey look it's never a bad thing to have a bit of Bonamassa <laughs> playing and in your lick life well, I, right? so, I think it's especially uh, common with guitarists nowadays is that they always should and they do wear their influences on their sleeve and mm-hmm. not try and hide who who they're influenced by because there's a lot of people who are like they, they feel like it's uh I'm influenced by this guy, but I don't want people to know about it because they think I'm like copying his style or things like that. I'm like, no, it, it's not a case of that. It is it is definitely a case of you have to be influenced by someone and that you will, you know, instinctively take on some characteristics from them. So it, it's, because uh, mm. there's obviously something that gravitated you towards that person and, and their style of playing. And it definitely was for Joe. I love, I love all his playing and things like that. But I, I'm the same with people like Steve, Stevie Ray Vaughan. I'm like, I, lo- I freaking love his playing and how he, how he goes about playing things and things like that. So it really is just like a melting pot of, musical influences for every guitarist and musician in general. Um, yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's definitely a thing you should be proud of and wear on your sleeve a lot more. I don't think people do that. Right? Mm. People, people get bashful. They're like, yeah. well, you know, uh, I'm just, because I think there's this, there's this thing, right. Where people want to try and create their own sound. And they want to be individualistic. But yeah, which that doesn't I totally just get. necessarily happen, right? Yeah, that doesn't happen by accident. It happens by assimilating things into a melting pot yeah, generally. Exactly. I absolutely get that you want to find your own sound, which is obviously like the guitar player's dream is to be the, the, the absolute pinnacle dream is to play one note and everyone knows who you are. It's like the BB King thing. Everyone knows BB King, King from thing. one note. Yeah. Or like, right. or at least like one second. So even if you play a million notes in that one second, you know who it's going to be. Like, you know, Ingwer yeah. Malmsteen, you know who he is instantly exactly. from you you just hear like an excessive amount of notes and overly wide vibrato but it sounds awesome no, it's like, the fury. <laughs> yeah, exactly so yeah it's, it, it literally is just like you want to convey yourself in the shortest amount of time possible and everyone knows who you are kind of thing that that's that's like the ideal dream and i like the fact that some guitarists also um kind of were the influences on their sleeves because it becomes a gateway for other people to find out about those influences exactly I remember yeah when I was learning guitar, it, for me, the album that got me playing 
blues was from the cradle, Eric Clapton. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, early nineties. And um, for me, that is, that is kind of Clapton's pinnacle blues playing sound. But when you go back and I mean, on that album, you've got things like tore down, which is a Freddie King song. Yeah, and you yeah. go back and listen to the Freddie King play and you go, Oh, I can hear all that Clapton stuff. It's yeah, not Clapton yeah. stuff. It's Freddie King stuff. And you start realizing how much these players that you enjoy listening yeah. to are wearing those influences on the sleeves, but it still sounds yeah, like exactly. them. Yeah, and exactly, and they can sometimes open up doors to other players, like you say. The industry, like you went back and listened to Freddie King, and like you know, because every, like I said, every player is a melting pot of influences, and like that's right. You know, you see, like take, you know, I know, I know, we mentioned him a lot, but take Bonamassa for instance. He's like hugely influenced by people like like Clapton, BB King, Jeff mm-hmm. Beck, Steve Ray Vaughan, yeah. mm. lots of people. Yeah. Um, and Eric Johnson, people like that, and Eric like, Johnson, you, and like, sure. you kind yeah. of, and yeah, that's exactly. I actually found. Um, I think it was Eric Johnson. It was, yeah, I think I found Eric Johnson through Bottom Master because everyone's like, oh, yeah, I can hear a lot of Eric Johnson style in Spain. He's like, oh, really? I'll go and have a listen. And it's like, yeah. And then I fr- found Eric Johnson to freaking love Eric Johnson now. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> you know, it's, um, it can really lead you to other things. And um, that's why I'm always open about who I'm influenced by. And I, I understand why people are like kind of tentative about being because it's a bit of a, I don't know. Yeah. Like, like, like you say, they're trying to be their individual selves, which is totally fine. I totally get that as well. But also, you've got, you've got to respect where you come from, man. It's, it's like a course. Absolutely. Yeah, and and carry that mantle forward, like yeah. especially for somebody like you, who's who, as Matt said, <clears throat> you will be on the Albert Hall stage one day. Aww. I've got no doubt, right? <laughs> I've got no doubt. But yeah. you know, it will be really um, that's that carrying that thing forward, right? As in the way that Bonamass is doing it for the people that influenced him, and Clapton did it for the way that that people influenced him. It's it's kind of it's nice to have that legacy that kind of transcends absolutely, you know, different generations, so that it, you know you get these new guitarists being inspired by you know, what came before them and then putting their own stamp on it and moving it, moving it back. Absolutely. I hundred percent agree with that. Which is yeah. cool. It's which cool, is isn't cool. it? Cause I guess Bonamassa always wanted to play at the Albert Hall because of his, he loved that Cream Farewell album with Clapton and Cream playing at, at the Royal Albert Hall. Yeah. And, and then he's managed to make his dream happen. And it's almost like, you know, you want to be part of that ongoing kind of process of influence and achievement and influence and achievement. And it's yeah, cool, absolutely. Man. I yeah. like it. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. So there's this last year of lockdown, um, end of 2020, you released uh, Exile, Live in Lockdown, um, which was your yes. live album with Catfish. One of the things I wanted to, to ask about is, obviously the, the pandemic ruined everyone's plans for touring mm-hmm. live music. Um, was this live album born out of a need to be creative in lockdown or did you always have a live album on the cards? We always wanted to do a live album and we've been talking about that for a while and maybe that was going to be the next thing we released because, um, uh, yeah, we, we play the songs on the albums differently live, like they're slower mm. or they're faster or there's, you know, they'll, they'll tend to be structurally similar, yeah. Um, but they will be obviously on the album, you take some liberties and try and find some interesting sounds and things like that. So you try and find some weird things. So then when you do it live, you have to try and find a way around it with what you got because, um, yeah, I played like mandolin and things like that on some of the... Yeah. The, the broken man stuff and I'm like I'm not bringing, uh-huh. I'm not bringing a mandolin yeah. to every game I can barely play it anyway um, so things like that so yeah you just find like a different way of doing it so yeah, yeah it was it was a way that we wanted it was something that we wanted to do was do a live album because we felt like the live versions of the songs had mm. something different and we always prefer playing live to being in the studio anyway so it was yeah definitely something we wanted to do it wasn't it, this this layout wasn't exactly how we planned it being with it being in lockdown, basically, basically how the lock, how it came about was uh, there was a festival out in Holland that we had played before. Uh, in fact, actually, the previous year we had played it uh, in 
it was called Blues Maastricht in Maastricht, Holland. Um, and they had seen Dad and I, Paul and I, uh, doing uh, acoustic duo live streams, like from our home. And, uh, you know, we've been doing a few of them every now and again for different venues, different festivals, things like that. And um, yeah, they really enjoyed it and they wanted us to do something similar for them, but with a full band, like a live stream, but with the full band. So they helped us. Uh, we found a venue and they were like, yep, yeah, we'll, we'll, monetize it so we can you can afford the venue venue hire and we'll get a video crew in and things like that we didn't make any money from it but it was just it was a fun thing to do um and uh yeah it was it was really good to do and the, the, yeah i love that festival as well so yeah i'll happily do that as well and that was the first time we had played together in five months and we decided not to do any rehearsal uh purely because a it's wasn't a smart idea because obviously you can't really be in you know, confined spaces with each other, but also because we wanted to get the first notes that we play on the live stream to be the first notes that we've played in five months, you know, yeah. so everyone kind of sees the the energy that you get from that. I mean, we had, mm-hmm. we'd done like a yeah. little run through beforehand to obviously test the gear and things like that, but that was like us performing properly for the first time mm-hmm. in five mm-hmm. months. And it went really well. Like, uh, it was all like, I hate to use the phrase, but it was like, you know, it's like riding a bike. You kind of remembered how it goes and things like that. Um, and we obviously, because it was a live stream and they were, they were filming it and things like that. They had all the audio and the, the, the video for it, uh, obviously set up and recorded. So we listened to it back and I was like, yeah, there is a a certain energy about this and a certain sound that it's, it's got going for it. And we really liked it. And we decided to turn it into a live album and a, a live DVD. Uh, like I said, cause you had all the audio footage there and it, yeah, again, it was, it came out of something that we had no idea what to expect. Cause there was no one there except for the video crew. So there's no audience. Um, so doing a live album with no audience <laughs> was definitely not something that I, I had <laughs> planned on doing. Maybe it might have happened. You never know. We, we'd be planning. We, we could plan to do a live album at this venue, and then just no one shows up. And then no one shows up. But it's been it's been a while <laughs> since that's happened. I'm sure. Never know. You never know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely yeah, never know. So it's like, like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah, I'm gonna record. This gonna be the next big thing. Just no one shows up. Um, <laughs> but yeah. It, it, like I said, it, it was just the energy of it that we had. And yeah. I think it was a, it's definitely a unique thing. I don't think we would do uh, another live album until it's a proper live album now. Yeah. I want, because yeah. I want to keep this one kind of like a unique kind of sounding thing yeah. for us. Um, I know obviously a lot of people have kind of been doing a similar thing now, but um, yeah, it, it's a, it's a big thing for us now. And, and we're proud of how it came out and it was definitely a unexpected surprise at how it turned out. So yeah, it's uh, yeah, very, very fun. So let me get this right. So, so that live album, Exile, Live in Lockdown, that that recording, each song is the first take of the first time you guys have played together for five months. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Um, I, I will say there are a few songs in there. <laughs> wow. that, um, astounding, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. but I will, I will say there was a, a few songs on there that were uh, not on the actual gig live stream uh, because... Yeah. Uh, you know, a gig is different to an album. You've got a different flow to yeah. like that. Um, so we did record a, this is a full disclosure thing. Maybe it's ruining yeah. behind the scenes kind of <laughs> no, thing. No, don't worry. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so we did record, like, I think it was like two of the songs weren't actually in the gig. So we recorded them afterwards, but we did do them in one mm. take. Yeah. Uh, or, it was before, or beforehand, either or. But yeah, it was, but yeah, it was all done in one take because obviously, you know, we only had a certain amount of time. So we didn't want to keep doing songs over and over again. Um so yeah, it was, it was all one take, which for me is uh, a big thing. Cause when I record, I take forever to record. Dude, um, that's I'm, a really, I that's am, a really humble, uh, kind of it's, it's volu- a, volunteering. That well, that's the thing is <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely way more comfortable on the stage than I am in the studio. Yeah. 
It's yeah. I don't know. I just get like red light fever all the time, and it's uh, and I do I do as well. Yeah. And and I could I see uh, me, Matt and I have recorded <clears throat> a few times and gigged um, Matt Oliver and I and gigged plenty of times, and I totally get that as well. Like live, it's it's like there's there's nothing. It's just like tranquil peace and just I'm in the zone, and. Uh, in the studio, I just don't know what it is. It's just that kind of pressure. Of, and I think you can practice your way out of that just by kind of getting familiar with it and trying to ignore yeah, it. Yeah, it's but. definitely an experience thing, yeah. I think it's definitely, it's a completely different environment for me. So everyone's really surprised when I say that, but it's like, it's not the same thing. Like yeah. it's it's like a gig, you're there, there's hundreds of people in front of you potentially. And it's like, you're for one, you're being paid to be there. Um, and, um, and, you know, if you make a mistake, if you make a mistake, you're never going to hear that again. You know, it's like, mm-hmm, that's that's right. the, you know, you never have to listen to that again. It's like, that's it. That's done. Never going to hear it again. Um, unless you, for some reason, go and listen to yourself on YouTube and people's iPhone footage of you, but mm, that's something you can easily avoid. <laughs> yeah. Whereas in the studio, <laughs> yeah. in the studio, it's like, it's, you have to get it right. You, and you're, you're paying to be there. You, you're on a strict budget and someone's there is employed to be there, you know, to kind of do this. And it's, all, it's usually very comfortable. So usually the, the sound engineers that we work with are lovely. And, you know, the spaces that we work in are lovely things, but it's just like, they're still like an underlying thing for me where it's like, I have to get this right. Because otherwise, if you record it, you're going to hear that mistake over and over yeah. and over and over again. I'm, you know, I'm like a lot of guitar players. I'm a very self-critical person when it comes to my own playing this. I think it's a natural thing for anyone in the mm-hmm. um, creative industry. And it's like a, you know, you're always kind of critical of your own work more so than anyone else would be. Like I'll, I'll, I'll be like, oh, that was kind of out of tune and oh, there's a bit of a, I didn't quite play that right there. Literally, no one else is going to notice. And it's like, or maybe if they do, they don't care. And it's like, so it's, it's definitely a, a self-inflicted kind of thing. <laughs> but yeah, it's, um, but yeah, no, I, I always, whenever I'm recording, I do tend to take multiple takes of like solos and things like that. Cause I want to get it right. I want to get the right kind of thing. And you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not one to be like, Oh yeah, I do my solos in one take and it's all live in the studio and things like that. I don't care. <laughs> I just want it to sound good. You know, it's like, that's the thing for me. I just want it to sound the, you know, as best as I can make it. And like, if that does happen to me meticulously yeah. doing it over and over again and kind of slowly losing my mind, then that's how I do it. <laughs> well, I guess um, it's kind so of like it. that with, with, if you, you do a live gig, obviously if you do make a mistake or if it's not as good as the last gig, there's always another gig to go and kind of put that Absolutely. right. But if you're doing an album at some point, you have to commit yeah. it to tap and, and, and say that is it. So it is exactly. harder to let go yeah. of it, isn't it? You, you can always say, I'll have one more go at it. You know? Exactly. Like there's always one more take. And usually, usually the annoying thing is that the best take was the second take that you did. And now you're on like yeah. the 46th take. And it's like, oh, okay, maybe I should have stopped. <laughs> but exa- that's exactly right. And also with albums, you know, this is all going to be stuff that you haven't played live yet. Because obviously mm. you don't want to, you know, yeah. everyone hear your music and record all the footage first before you have it on your album. That's right. Um, my dad and I have a saying where it's like, ideally, you'd actually want to record the album at the end of the tour. Because yeah. then yeah. you've played it a whole bunch of times and you know how it goes. And also you might find some new things that you find live that you want to put mm. into it. Yeah. So ideally yeah. you want to do it at the end of the tour. But obviously the idea of a tour is to promote the album. So <laughs> it's, it's, not, the album. it's not a very you know smart move. But it's like, <laughs> ideally, if you want to get the perfect sound, you do it at the end of the tour. But yeah. you know, like, like I said, everyone's going to film it on their phones. Yeah.